I'm Nick Harcourt and welcome to another episode of The Sound of Success, the podcast where we talk with movers, shakers, and just plain cool people about music. Joining us today on The Sound of Success is actor, comedian, writer, musician, radio host, director, and producer, Harry Shearer. Born in Los Angeles, Harry got an early start in the entertainment business with his first gig age seven on the Jack Benny radio show. His film debut came a couple of years later, age 10, in an Abbott and Costello movie. And in the early 70s, he was a member of a radio comedy group, The Credibility Gap, before starting to write for film and television. He had two stints on Saturday Night Live in the 80s, and in 1984, co-created, co-wrote, and co-starred as Derek Smalls in the groundbreaking satirical rockumentary film, This Is Spinal Tap. In 1989, he joined the cast of The Simpsons, where he has created voices for a whole host of principal characters, including Mr. Burns, Waylon Smithers, Principal Skinner, Ned Flanders, Reverend Lovejoy, Kent Brockman, and a whole host of others. Harry has appeared in movies like The Truman Show and A Mighty Wind. He has directed two of his own, Teddy Bear's Picnic and The Big Uneasy. And since 1983, he has been the host of the public radio program, Le Show. He has written three books, won a Primetime Emmy Award, and has received several other Emmy and Grammy Award nominations. He became an artist in residence, at Loyola University in New Orleans in 2013. Harry, thanks for making the time to join us on The Sound of Success. Thanks, Nick. Great to be here. I mentioned at the beginning of that little uh, intro that you were born in LA and started working Mm -hmm. at the age of seven. What Mm -hmm. kind of kid were you and how did you end up working at such a young age? Uh, I was an only child. Um, I was besotted with broadcasting and with newspapers. And fortunately, I didn't choose the latter for a career because I'd be less, I'd be more unhappy if I, if I had done that than I am now. And I, um, had, I took piano lessons from the age of four. And um, the teacher, her, she had a daughter and her daughter was an actress. And uh, so she had show business contacts and uh, a couple years along, when I was about six, she uh, decided to change careers and become a children's agent. And she uh, asked my parents if it was okay if she tried to get me work. And it just seemed so odd. They were both European immigrants. It just seemed like, well, I guess we're in Hollywood now. And eight months went by and nothing happened. And we thought it was a joke. And uh, then she calls with an audition for the Jack Benning program. And um, I was a very good reader. And so I could go in and, and do a spot reading of the script they put in front of me. And um, that's what got me the gig. Working at such a young age, obviously, I mean, you're a kid. Um, do you mm-hmm. have any idea of how big these people are that you're working oh, with? Oh, yeah. Them? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because I was a fan of all this stuff. This was the world I would have paid money to walk into as a kid. And I didn't have to. I got to walk into it for free. Um, I knew exactly who Jack Benny was. I knew who Mel Blanc was. He was the voice of Looney Tunes. He was on that show. We became friends. Oh, I was very aware of, of what I was in the middle of, especially with Jack Benny. I mean, I've worked for a lot of people, a lot of other people along the way, but especially Jack Benny, I knew exactly how lucky I was because it was the most wonderful showbiz scene I'd ever been in before or since you know it was really they were grown-ups in every sense of the word Uh, they weren't just older than I was but they acted like grown-ups you know and everything was cool 
You mentioned Mel Blanc and uh, you ended up emulating, you know, what he did all those years later when you got into working in animation yourself uh, at such a young age. What was it about him? You said you became pals. Well, he had a, a, a son who was about my age. So he, I guess, knew how to relate to a, a kid of that age. And he was just a lovely guy. I mean, you know, we didn't, we didn't go out for coffee or stuff like that. But every, <laughs> I worked on the Benny show, you know, about a dozen times a year. So I'd see him whenever I was at the Benny show and we'd just chat and have, you know, I'd always sit by him and we were uh, reading the scripts or doing the show. So lovely guy. You worked for a while as a kid, and then uh, I guess you went to school, right? Because you majored in political science at UCLA, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. became a high school teacher for a while, which, which I didn't know. In Compton, California, I was a high school teacher. Well, please do tell me about those two years. Well, um, there are two words that describe them, I think, with the greatest of accuracy, draft dodge. Okay, so you went to went to teach at school uh, because the last thing you wanted to do was uh, end up in Vietnam, obviously. That's correct. Compton was better than Vietnam, believe it or not. Radio obviously played such a big part in your early career and has continued mm -hmm. to throughout your life. I, I mentioned the credibility gap, um, mm -hmm. which was a, a gig on a news station in here in L.A., uh, KRLA, mm -hmm. I believe. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about those days and your early exposure to uh, performing your own satire, I guess, on the radio? Yeah. During my teaching days, I had gotten roped in by a friend to a scene in Hollywood called Kaleidoscope. It's the big building across the street from the Palladium on Sunset Boulevard. Um, I forget what it's called now, but it was originally Earl Carroll's Vanities, and it was like a, a showgirl nightclub thing. And then by the 60s, that had disappeared, and it was a um, rock emporium on the weekends, and the rest of the week, a film emporium. So it was a multimedia sh show venue. Mm. And... Um, so they hired me. I was friends with one of the with one of the guys who ran it, and they hired me to do their advertising. And I got a friend to uh, sort of deal with the poster side of things. You had to do posters when you had a rock emporium, and I did the radio commercials. And we couldn't afford to buy time on the big top forty station. We bought time on the second top forty station, and the ad salesman for that station said one day. Hey, we're starting something that you might be interested in. It's a it's a funny newscast, and they, they we started it up, and I heard it, and I went okay. Made a tape at home, drove to Pasadena where the station was located, mm. dropped it off the reception there, reception desk, sped home. You know, wasn't very proud of myself. I just thought I don't know about this. And by the time I, I opened the front door and walked into the house, there was a message on my answering machine: "Can you come to work tomorrow?" Wow. Yeah. So that was pretty cool. And um, so it was three 10 minute shows a day. So quite a quite a drill. Three a day. Um, right. Three a day. There was just enough weed to go around. And um, <laughs> and the other people were the guys who had been doing the straight news. And um, I was the first one who wasn't a straight newscaster on weed who uh, joined the group. And uh, pretty soon the other guys started burning out one way or another. And uh, so David L. Lander was the next person to join us. And then he said, I got a friend, McKean, which was Michael McKean, and he joined us. And so it was the three of us and the one 
ex-newscaster who had stayed, which is a guy named Richard Beebe, passed away some years ago. So we were a four-piece group, and we were on the radio, as I say, three times a day. Really amazing grind, but, you know, the, the perfect thing to be doing in your 20s, working way too hard um, and having a ball. What is it about working live that gives you the edge that, uh, you know, comedians or satirists live for? Well, I don't live for working live. I live, uh, I mean, I would, I love working to an audience, although, you know, I've gotten well used to not doing that in, in almost 40 years of doing a radio show that, that doesn't have an audience. But um, there's a collection of energy in a room with an audience. My strongest sense of that was I did a, a play in England a few years back uh, on, in the West End and then on, the, on tour. And it was a three-person show, two other actors and me. Not a comedy, very serious show. And we would go out in front of the audience every night doing the same show. And every night it was a different show. Mm. The audience through their energy level or some other even more evanescent communication medium told us what kind of show they wanted to see. And that's what we did. And it sounds mystical and stupid, but that's the fact. We come out at the end of, you know, come off stage at the end of the show. And go, wow, we went there tonight. And we, it was the same words, same movements, but the audience communicated to us the vibe that they were on and that we needed to be on to communicate with us. And that's pretty mystical, but that's, that's the essence of live performance. Yeah, it's not something that you can uh, quantify. So, so I understand oh, the, yeah. the the mystical uh, part of that, and and, and how uh, an audience and uh, performers respond on any on any given night. You mentioned that you met uh, Michael McKean back back in those days. Um, mm -hmm. When when did Rob Reiner and uh, Christopher Guest come into your uh, purview, and how did Spinal Tap come about? Well, Christopher was a friend of Michael's. They had gone to school together. And I went to New York on a visit and uh, Christopher had joined the National Lampoon Radio Hour. And Michael said, look, well, look at my friend Chris when you're in New York. So we went out to eat and uh, Chris had a partner, um, Tom Leopold, very funny guy. And they did two half hour TV pilots together, flakes and fruits and, fruit and, fruits and vegetables. And they just did all these characters were extremely funny. And so a little while later, I get a call from Rob. He was a big follower of the Credibility Gap when we started doing live performances. He'd come to our gigs. So that's how I knew him. And he said, I, I got this deal to do this uh, pilot for ABC. And so he hired me to produce it. He was executive producer. And he said, we, we need to fix the script a little bit. So I said, well, I've just seen these two guys, Chris and Tom, and they're really funny. Let's hire them, which is what we did. And the pilot starts with a, your camera is behind the back of a guy sitting in a lounge chair with a remote looking at a big TV in his living room. Mm -hmm. And the show is what he sees. He's just dialing through TV. Got it. So the sketch is making fun of what's on TV. And the fact that he's got a clicker means that, yeah, okay, as often happens, we write a really funny sketch with a really shitty ending. We can get out of the sketch before the ending <laughs> if he clicks to something else. So it was a really good format, really smart format. And, uh, and so it goes through a day. And at the end of the day, there was a, a show on NBC in those days on Friday nights called Midnight Special. You may remember mm -hmm. it. Musical, get, musical, you know, bands performing live in front of a studio audience. 
and host was Wolfman Jack, who was a DJ on a local LA station, actually a Mexican station that broadcast into LA. Sure. The big X, X, E, R, and B. <laughs> and uh, so Rob did a good Wolfman impression and he couldn't sing or play an instrument. So he was the, he was Wolfman and Chris and Michael and I were the band along with Loudon Wainwright, uh, who's the keyboard player and Russ Kunkel, who was the drummer. And we did a, we wrote a song called Rock and Roll Nightmare and did a performance, sort of a proto video. And uh, as we were lying on the floor waiting for the lighting cue that never happened, we started talking about we should do other things with these guys. Got it. And that was the sort of the, the, the zygote of uh, the notion. And uh, Rob went to a film company and got us a deal to write a uh, first draft. And we sat in a hotel room and about day three, trying to pound out a script, we looked at each other and said, nobody's gonna be able to read this, and get any idea of what this is. Let's take the money they're paying us and make a, a 20 minute demo, mm-hmm. and, uh, which had a lot of the jokes and a lot of the songs of the, that ended up in the movie. And then we went to every major studio in LA and sat in a room with the production heads and uh, when the lights came up, looked at the at them having the blankest expressions on their faces imaginable, you know, <laughs> and saying, "What the fuck was that?" Well, it would be it would be a major it would be a feature length motion picture. Rock and roll movies don't make any money. We get out of here. Sure. So it almost never got done. But the the rest is history, and you uh, you kicked yeah. off a, a style of, uh, of of movie making and, and television making, uh, obviously that we still see today. Talking about radio again, just just very quickly, uh, you and yeah. I have actually worked on on the same radio stations uh, a, a couple of times. Strangely enough, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. here in Los Angeles, when did you start the show? December third, nineteen eighty three. Right. So you're coming up on a, a, an anniversary of of that show, as well as a, an anniversary of this is Spinal Tap. Uh, yeah. Through the years of of doing the radio show, though. You mine what's going on in the world, don't you? I mean, satire mm-hmm. is really just observational comedy. We're in a really sort of strange time, aren't we? As we're recording this, it's April of uh, 2022. Uh, the world appears to be emerging from the COVID pandemic, maybe. There's a horrific war in uh, in Ukraine, and Elon Musk just bought Twitter. How do you find <laughs> satire in, in these trying times? Well, you know... Uh, I was doing satire during the Vietnam War. I was doing satire during the O.J. Simpson trial. I've learned to mine um, serious events for uh, comedy purposes because Freud says we laugh at what scares us. So these are good re- good reasons to uh, find something funny. And you don't find anything funny to me in, um, let's say the deaths in Ukraine or the murders in the O.J. Simpson trial. You find comedy in people's behavior around those events. Uh, The circus that developed in Los Angeles for for the Simpson trial, for example, or the uh, political posing that goes on with the Ukraine thing. And I think it, it, uh, I would say that it served me personally kind of well during the previous presidency because all of my friends were, you know, incredibly angry all the time and frustrated and just pissed off at this thing that was going on in the White House. And I was making fun of them every week. And it was like, it 
it took the pressure off of me. You know, I, I didn't feel nearly as bitterly crappy all the time because that guy was in the White House. And hopefully it, it served some function for people who listened as well. Um, I, I used to say, I don't say this anymore because it's too self-deprecating even for me, but um, that I just have almost no imagination. So I let the news write my straight lines. You know, before we turn our uh, attention here to some some music questions, mm -hmm. I have to ask you about The Simpsons. Um, mm -hmm. We're in season 33, I think, uh, coming towards the yeah. end of, of, of season 33. Over the years, I'm, I'm presuming that uh, writers come in and, and, and writers uh, go out of, uh, you know, any any program. How does how does The Simpsons stay stay on top of, of uh, current affairs? Well, I, you know, I've not I've never um... Pay, spend much time in the writer's room. So uh, I, I can't tell you really what all they do. Um, it's, um, you know, I, uh, I had some experience in, in writer's rooms where I didn't choose my collaborators. And so it's not a, uh, I, I, I prefer to choose my collaborators, let's put it that way. But, you know, there are a bunch of guys and, and now increasingly women as well sitting around a room, shooting the breeze until an idea strikes one or uh, another of them. And, you know, uh, they pitch the idea to the uh, showrunner, uh, showrunners now. And uh, then they go off and write a script. I did this once. And uh, then the script goes, goes, when you've completed your draft, it goes into the writer's room and people are pitching, you know, jokes that they think should be part of that script. So... You know, everybody is paying, you know, they're smart people. A lot of them are Harvard people. They, uh, so they're almost all news consumers. Uh, and uh, so what's going on in the world is, is top of mind for a lot of them. Hmm. When I was at Saturday Night, I was perhaps the only one of the writers at that point that was really a serious news consumer. And it, it was in the beginning, it was not nearly uh, as big a part of the show's DNA as it is now to be commenting on the week's news i mentioned uh, some of the principal characters that you voiced and i was looking on imdb which is the internet movie database and there is just such a long list of <laughs> characters that that you voiced do you, do you actually know how many characters you've voiced on the simpsons oh, well, somebody wrote me and said that they thought it was 23 so uh, I, I really don't i know it's one less than it used to be yes um, because you stopped voicing one of, one of the characters. Tell us about that real quick. Yeah. Well, contrary to what it says in the news, I didn't step down or decide to stop doing it. I was told to stop doing it in an email. Dr. Julius Hibbert, I think he was, I know Hibbert came from the, you know, Toots Hibbert, the, uh, mm. the great Jamaican musician. And perhaps Julius came from my middle name. I don't know. I didn't, I didn't name him. But uh, he was a character who was introduced, I think, in season three. Simpsons by that time was huge. And Fox got the idea that we could knock off the number one show if they moved us from Sunday night to Thursday night, uh, opposite the number one show, which was at the time the Cosby show. And Cosby was known in the trade as the whitest black man on television. And so, you know, he's this avuncular doctor or sweaters and just as, you know, warm as, warm as mush. And um, 
So this character was created as a, a, almost an exact parody of the character that Cosby played. Dr. Julius Hibbert was a doctor, family, you know, very avuncular, wore sweaters, um, not a trace of blackness to him except his complexion. No hint of any dialect or anything like that. He was just, you know, whitest black man on television. And there was this fracas, uh, a, a film came out attacking a different character, Apu, mm -hmm. for being played by a white actor when he was a uh, South, uh, yeah, Hank Azari, when he was a, a South Asian character. And so Hank said, well, I'm gonna stop doing it then. And it, uh, it started something. And so I was told, you know, you're going to stop doing uh, this guy. So there is now a very fine black actor who was told, I guess, to imitate me. Because if you hear him, you hear the, the voice. So it's a black actor imitating a white actor doing the whitest black actor on television. Say no more. That's all. Yeah. And, and the world moves on. Yeah, and the world moves on. Let's talk music. We started off by talking about your childhood and uh, taking piano lessons. Um, mm -hmm. my, my first question in this, uh, you know, the, the Nick Proustian questionnaire here is what is your first musical memory? Is it piano lessons or is it something else? I remember my dad uh, was training to be a, a tenor, operatic tenor in Vienna. So my first apprehension of music was the classical music station um, all the time in our house. Um, the voices of the guys who played the classical records, uh, the sponsors and the classical music and just, you know, the stuff that would be played on a, on a standard classical music station in those days, you know, the, the standard repertoire. Right. Beethoven, Mozart, uh, that stuff. What was the first music you bought with, with your own money? I believe it was um, a couple of George Shearing records. George Shearing was a Brit who was a um, American jazz pianist, lived in LA, um, had a very particular sound, which was uh, as he played front and back of, his, of the tracks, the melody of the tune, you know, and then he'd go into solos, of course. But in the front, in the, in the, as he's playing the melody of the songs, the piano is playing pretty much the same thing as vibes. The vibes are duetting with the piano playing the melody. And it was a very, very particular sound because it was when vibes mixed pretty much together. Um, you could recognize it right away. So I bought a couple of those LPs and then shortly thereafter, uh, Songs for Swing and Lovers with Frank Sinatra. What was the first concert you went to without parents? Ah, um, would have been in San Francisco. I was working in Sacramento and I had a friend from college who had become the Manage the co-manager of the Grateful Dead. And so I had uh, come down from Sacramento on the weekends to hang out at, uh, in Haight-Ashbury. And I went to uh, the Fillmore. And um, I believe it was Big Brother and the Holding Company. The, the thing about the Fillmore was it was very eclectic bookings. So I don't remember who was opening for the, for the Big Brother, but it, you know, it would be Miles Davis and then a blues musician and then a San Francisco band as the headliner. That mm -hmm. was the way that Fillmore book. So it was a really interesting kind of way to get into rock and roll. And um, I immediately headed for the men's room and stuffed my ears with toilet paper because of the <laughs> volume. And I've never been without ear protection ever since. 
that you'd learn that lesson uh, early, uh, which, which is a good one. But we should point out to anybody who's uh, on the younger side, if you're going to listen to loud music and you don't want to end up with tinnitus or tinnitus, uh, which is what I have now, earplugs. Yeah, yeah, really, really good ones. Every musician I know, well, a couple of them anyway, have like half their hearing left, especially if you're standing anywhere near the drummer, you know, that, that snare at top volume right next to you is going to kill you. Have you ever actually been driven out of a show because of the the noise level? I've left a couple of shows. Yeah, it was too much, even with earplugs or tissue paper. My my partners and and I went to see Judas Priest at the Long Beach Arena. Mm. They were doing research for Spinal Tap. Yeah, and it, we could we could bear about half a show, and then we had to we had to flee. What do you, what do you listen to when you want to dance? Well, I'm not a dancer. <laughs> I'm really not a dancer. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you the story of what I want to listen to when I don't want to dance. I, I skipped two grades in school. So my mom wanted to do something to sort of make it easier for me to be with people who were not my peers because, you know, in tween and teen years, two years is like a, a, a century. She might as well be, yeah. Yeah. So she enrolled me in a dance class at the Jewish Community Center in Los Angeles, figuring, you know, well, be with these kids i'll learn to dance with them so and at this point this was before this was before the beatles i'd really hated rock and roll in that period and so they had a jukebox with all these songs that they were they would play for us to dance to and i figured out they had one song on the jukebox that wasn't you know shitty and it was frank sinatra singing chicago and I figured a way to jimmy the jukebox, not not a cartoon character. I figured a way to fuck with the jukebox so that it would just keep playing Chicago over and over again. So that's the song I want to hear when I don't want to dance. This is a complete sidebar, but I think you'll appreciate it. Uh, many years ago when I was leaving the UK for the first time, I had to go to Liverpool to go get a passport. And uh, it was when Laurie Anderson's Oh Superman came out <laughs> and I, I, I will tell you that my, myself and a friend went into a, a bar in uh, in liverpool while we were waiting for the, the passport and put that on 10 times in the jukebox and left that'll do it <laughs> um i did a parody of that i did a, a tv show in the uh, 80s and uh i did uh just for no reason at all except that i found this song tiresome i did uh you know the last person in the world who was going to do a commercial Laurie Anderson, and it was a commercial for uh, Forever and a Day, a, a mega pad, not a maxi pad, but a mega pad. And I actually, I had a makeup woman who was so good that she made me look like Laurie Anderson. And wow. I did really a video of that, doing all the, you know, yeah, silly, silly gestures and stuff. And uh, I did a show in a nightclub once in New York. And to cover a costume change, I showed that that commercial was like 35 or 40 seconds. And I just ran it to cover my costume change. And at the end of one night, uh, a waitress said, oh, Laurie Ander Anderson was my customer tonight. And she left this note for you. And then it was, please take that out. <laughs> <laughs> we should point out, by the way, that that song, Go, Oh, Superman, is about eight minutes long. And oh, uh, I, well, I the commercial was not. Yeah, I <laughs> should be looking for it in the Google after we, we finish speaking. I'm sure I can find yeah. that somewhere. Um, <laughs> what do you listen to when you're feeling sad? Well, I'll tell you one of the things 
Um, and I've just gotten my sound system back because there's construction going on in this house and they had to move all the furniture into where the sound system is. And, but uh, Brahms Piano Concerto number one. What is it about that piece? Um, it's just got so much depth to it. It's like it reaches me way, 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 way deep. I remember when I was alone in New York, it was in New York a couple of summers and I was alone and I uh, went into the uh, local branch of the New York Public Library had a record collection because I didn't bring my record collection with me. Mm. And uh, I would listen to uh, all these classical records because this was before my rock and roll period. And uh, that one hit me like a ton of bricks. And uh, just it's a go-to piece for me. And it's, it's also um, the subject of one of the great performances I've ever heard. Uh, Glenn Gould, the Canadian pianist, um, was known for his Bach performances, but um, he did a show, with a show, his concert with the New York Philharmonic and Leonard Bernstein was conducting and he came out before the performance and this was on the radio and apologized to the audience for what was gonna happen because he disagreed so violently with Glenn Gould's interpretation of how to play wow. this concerto. And Gould was right and Bernstein was wrong. It, he slowed it down and got rid of all the didactic kind of uh, blustery uh, stuff. And you just revealed it to be a totally romantic piece that was just heartbreaking. Interpretation is everything, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. You know, the guy can write write a couple of words in Italian at the top of the page that really is not telling you what you need to know about how to perform it. Right. Do you have a favorite music video? Obviously the eighties were, uh, was when we first discovered music videos, uh, MTV and all that people still make videos. They're a lot cheaper to make these days, but do you have a favorite music video and why? Uh, no, I, I can't really say I do. I, um, I was, I mean, I've, I've made, several myself, uh, which were making fun of music videos. Do, do you have a favorite of your own then? Well, I have a, a you know, I love Christopher Guest um, did a, a video of Spinal Tap's Hellhole. And I uh, really liked that. And then uh, when I was, uh, Derek Smalls uh, did a, a solo project and uh, it was called Smalls Change because of course he wasn't with Tap anymore. And uh, I got to do that with a helicopter and a drone flying over Derek as he strolls <laughs> in a melancholy way across the beach at Malibu. And it's just such a silly thing. Uh, and we got a great day where the waves were crashing melodramatically. And it, it, uh, it's just so silly. I like that one. I've actually seen that one as well, because the last time that you and I spoke was was when uh, Smalls Change came out and you came into mm -hmm. the, the station here uh, in character, I might add, um, mm -hmm. completely in character with the hair and the whole thing. I was so impressed. Um, <laughs> well, because it was radio, right? But you showed up yeah. in character. Well, the only way I can do a character is is to if I look like him, you right. know, um, I mean, if I'm if I'm working on the radio and I'm doing a radio show of my own and I'm doing a bunch of different characters and I can't do that. But if I'm just playing one character, it really helps. Uh, I did this series uh, uh, on British TV of the Nixon White House tapes. And I really didn't feel like Nixon until I put on his suit. Mm -hmm. 
all of a sudden I felt like I could make his gestures and, you know, feel like I was in his skin uh, just with, because of that suit. Do you have a recent musical discovery that you'd like to share with our listeners? It doesn't have to be necessarily a new band, but something that's new to you. I like this Australian band called Ballpark Music. I used to listen to uh, an Australian DJ uh, on uh, Double J. And uh, through her, I discovered this band. They've been around for a while. I, I love two drug songs, one by Ballpark Music called Coming Down, which is about the obvious subject. <laughs> and another one by uh, one of my favorite American bands of the previous decade called uh, Fountains of Wayne. And that song is called Super Collider. And it's just, it, uh, it conjures up nothing so much as the first time I ever smoked uh, uh, Acapulco Gold in San Francisco. Fans of Wayne, of course, led uh, by the uh, the late Adam Schlesinger as, as well. Yeah. First, first musician I knew who uh, died of COVID, even before Ellis Marsalis. And right at the beginning as well. In fact, I think it was yeah. April 1st in that first year. Yeah, yeah. Lovely guy too. Wonderful, wonderful talent, wonderful guy. So check out Ballpark Music, ladies, gentlemen, um, mm-hmm. and actually out of Brisbane, which is a place that I spent some time back in the 80s. Really? Yeah, yeah. Brizzy, you were in Brizzy. I was in, I was in Brizzy, mate, yeah. You all right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I, 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 you know, because I do a radio show and because I play music, I keep trying to hear what's up and what's going on. I'm, I'm not a big fan of... Uh, Hip hop, although there were a couple of bands in, in a group of groups in the 90s that I really loved, Della Soul and, uh, uh, well, Della Soul particularly. Is there a band or an artist that you love, but you perhaps think they never quite got the big break they deserved? Well, I thought Fountains of Wayne should have been bigger. Um, you know, I went to see them in London and um, they were playing a 2000 seater. Um, and everybody in that room knew every lyric of every one of their songs. But, you know, I thought they could have gotten a little bigger than they did. Do you have a, a, a guilty pleasure, a musical guilty pleasure, that is? Um, in, in other words, you're going to tell us something that you haven't told anybody before. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, look, uh, I, I, it's not um, very hip at this point in time to be a... Uh, an admirer uh, or a fan of Frank Sinatra, but even worse, it's uh, really not appropriate <laughs> in in modern times to uh, admit that you really, really like a Dean Martin record. But um, there's one he made, and I have to say, in in some uh, defense, that what I really love about it, I, I mentioned loving Frank Sinatra records. There were there was a period before I liked him and there was a period of him after I liked him period, which I was crazy about was when he was making records with this arranger called Nelson Riddle Mm -hmm. and Nelson Riddle had the key to my ears. I just loved the way he arranged a large ensemble. I love the fact that he, from first verse to second verse, all the way through much like Paul McCartney's bass lines, he never repeated himself. And if a, a, a riff was played the first time you hear it by the trumpets, the next time you hear it, it's being played by the saxophones and the next time by somebody else. 
it's always something new and the sonorities of, of the way he arranged instruments were just delicious and so there's a dean martin record called ain't that a kick in the head and it's a silly song he's singing it as well as he can sing but the fucking arrangement is so wonderful that i am just a sucker for it every time i hear it yeah the the uh nelson riddle records um, whoever he worked with are just uh, amazing and 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 there's yeah. a big, dif- big big difference between sinatra's phrasing and and, and dean martin's phrasing that that's oh sure. yeah but there's a big difference between the way sinatra sang with nelson riddle and the way he sang later true he was really singing the songs with riddle and he was singing in the studio with this 40 50 piece band playing full on behind him you know it wasn't like when when he normal arrangers when they're arranging for a star singer a big band would be going oh, 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 and then the singer was saying and then oh, 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 little mm-hmm. little blip, blips and blabs riddle's arrangements were the, the orchestra was playing right through and sinatra had to sing over them and so he really had to sing at the top of his of his power to be heard over that orchestra and it was singing and then later on he starts singing kind of lazily and interposing syllables of nonsense and ring-a-ding-ding and all that shit <laughs> um, he was really singing the songs you've been living in in uh, new orleans for for what a decade or, or so now yeah yeah more I, i'm imagining that there's plenty of music to to, to listen to in new orleans what have you uh, discovered since since you've been living there well you know people think new orleans and think jazz uh but there's really a, an incredible richness of variety I mean, it's a, it's, there's an awful lot of very funky music. It's a black city, majority black city. And culturally, this is where jazz came from. And so there's a lot of it. But it's, uh, when, when you hear the word jazz, when I hear the word jazz, I think before I came here, I did. A lot of the performers outside of this city sort of redefined themselves as, well, I'm not an entertainer. I'm an artist. I mean, I, I, I once went to see Miles Davis when I was 19 years old and in New York and paid my $5 and went in and he played eight bars and walked off the stage. And I thought, what did I do to you? I paid you money. Um, the jazz players here have never stopped, including in their self-definition, the word entertainer. And so sometimes they'll slide more in that direction. Sometimes they'll slide less but that's always a component of what they're doing. There's always, they're always up there to entertain an audience. There's a, an amazing trumpet player here, Nicholas Payton, mm. who um, I, I did a, a record here called Autumn in New Orleans, which I, I sort of engaged my inner Hoagie Carmichael and wrote a song about what it's like when the fucking summer ends. And I had Nick play on it. Uh, so he came in for an hour to do solo a solo. And he did nine solos and each one was different and each one was perfect. And by perfect, I mean every note was perfectly formed and perfectly intonated. Uh, just stunning stuff. There's a, a young bass player I've just met here called Lex Warshawski. Again, who's just his intonation, his, his playing is just perfect. And even other musicians I know here are just in awe of him. There's great trad jazz here. There's great modern jazz. There's great funk. Of course, the Neville's, you know, stake their claim in here. One of the first really amazing moments I had of New Orleans music was when 
I had adored this record by the meters called Rejuvenation, you know, Hey Pocky Way and all of that. And when I, I thought I'd never hear them live and I walked into a club here and there they were playing mm. live after never having played for years. And I just thought, I've died and gone to New Orleans. <laughs> We've been talking to Harry Shearer on The Sound of Success. We're just about done. I have one question that I always uh, leave off with, which is how are you feeling right now? <laughs> um, you mean nowadays or this instant? In, in this moment. In this moment. Um, well, I'm feeling like uh, I've never spent this much time chatting with you out of character before, Nick. That, that's true. The last time we were uh, speaking, you were Derek Smalls. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just came here from playing basketball. So I'm a little uh, unhappy with myself because my shot was shit today. Um, <laughs> but uh, aside from that, I'm good. I, and I'm feeling uh, my wife is coming back uh, from Britain in a couple of days. And so I'm feeling eager and anticipatory. Well, thanks for hanging out with us on The Sound of Success, Harry. And uh, yeah, on, onwards. Thanks, man. Yeah, hopefully. Thanks, man. The Sound of Success is produced by Elizabeth Thompson with myself, Nick Harcourt, for Spark Network. Our theme music is by Keita Clay. For more episodes, find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and at sparknetwork.com.